John 3, verses 22 to 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John also was baptising at Ananon, near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptised. This was before John was put into prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To, John, to this, John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Amen. Uh, I wonder what are the things in life that bring you joy? Uh, Joy is an interesting concept, isn't it? Because it's, it's not the same as happiness, is it? I checked out a couple of uh, dictionary definitions of joy during the week and uh, this is what they said. um, One dictionary said that uh, joy is an intense and especially ecstatic or exultant form of happiness. Uh, Another said that joy is a deep feeling of or condition of happiness or contentment. And so... Uh, joy involves happiness, but it's not the same of happiness. It's sort of on a, it's on a higher level to happiness. It's deeper, it's more profound, it's more significant. Now, what are the things that bring you joy? I guess that uh, we would each have different things in our lives that bring us joy. A lot of the things which bring us joy would be, we'd share in common. But my guess is that we tend to feel joy uh, when we experience something which connects with our sense of purpose and meaning in life. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it, Uh, that we should find uh, a deep sense of satisfaction, a deep sense of contentment uh, when we feel that life is purposeful, uh, that it is meaningful. Sometimes when I study a passage of the Bible, uh, and I'm trying to work out the meaning of that passage or the... uh, or the the key meaning of the passage, I look for a sentence or a verse in the passage which I think is kind of like the key that unlocks the rest of it. You know, when you you understand that sentence, 
then the rest of the passage makes a whole lot more sense. And I think I found a sentence just like that in today's passage. Uh, Today we're looking at uh, John chapter 3, verses 22 through to verse 36, if you'd care to have that open in your Bibles. Uh, What you'll see is that this passage is essentially, it revolves around a conversation uh, between John the Baptist and some of his disciples. And verse 29 is what I think is the key sentence. Um, It's actually all about joy. Do you see it? Have a look at what verse 29 says. In verse 29, John the Baptist says, That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Do you see what he's saying? John has experienced a certain joy, or John is actually saying more than just he experienced joy, but rather that he possesses uh, a joy which is complete for him. Now, when I see something like that, I want to ask two questions. I want to ask, number one, uh, what is the source of that joy? And number two, how can I have a piece of it? Uh, Here is a guy who's experienced complete joy. Now, John had his own disciples. And when we meet John's disciples uh, here in this passage, uh, they are experiencing something which is the complete opposite to joy. Uh, They are not joyful at all. They are experiencing the opposite to joy. Uh, The passage opens up with a picture of baptisms taking place in two different places. Uh, Jesus and his disciples had gone from the city into the countryside and they were baptising people. Um, People were flocking to Jesus and were being baptised. Although we see in chapter 4, verse 1, I think it is, chapter 4, verse 2, rather, that Jesus himself didn't baptise anyone. It was always his disciples that did the baptisms. And uh, just as an aside, I think it's an interesting, it's interesting to note that I think as far as I can tell, this is the only passage in scripture where we see Jesus' disciples baptising people um, prior to uh, Jesus' resurrection uh, when they went out in fulfilment of the Great, Great Commission. But uh, this is the only part in scripture where we see Jesus' disciples during his lifetime baptising people. But John is also baptising people in another place. Uh, it's described there as called there a place called uh, Anon. Uh, we actually don't know exactly where that is. It doesn't exist today. But apparently it was a good spot for baptisms. There was plenty of water there. And people, we're told, were constantly coming in order to be baptised. And so that's the setting. That's the setting, folks. Uh, Previously, it had only been John and his disciples baptising people. But now there's another player on the scene, and that's Jesus and his disciples. So you've got baptisms happening at two separate places and centred around two different men, Jesus and John. Now, in verse 25... We're told that John's disciples, whilst they were baptising people, got themselves into an argument. 
they were involved with an argument in an argument with a particular man who we were not told anything about him except that he was a Jew. And we're told that it was an argument about ceremonial washings. We're not filled in on the details of that. Uh, we can only make guesses as to what exactly they were arguing about. And so I'll make a guess. Um, I think that given the context, uh, the fact that we're, you know, the context is baptisms taking place and we're told that there's an argument going on about ceremonial washings, then maybe it's an argument about you know, what's, which one's better. Uh, you know, and what's the difference between the two? What's, you know, what's the difference between baptising someone and the traditional Jewish ceremonial washings, which were done for the purification of sins? You know, what's the difference between the two? Maybe that was the content of the argument. Uh, what we do know about the argument, or we can presume from it at least, is that at some point in this argument that the issue of Jesus came up. Because uh, there's John and his disciples baptising people. But in another place, there's this other bloke, Jesus, and, he and his disciples are baptising as well. So Jesus became a part of this argument. Now we know that because uh, when the disciples of John took the matter to John in verse 26, what was, the, what was it that they were interested in? In verse 26, did they go to John and say to him, look, we're seeking clarification about this issue of the difference between baptisms and ceremonial washings. We want to get a theological answer to this point that's been raised with us by the... Is that what they... No, it isn't. Not at all. Have a look at verse 26. In verse 26, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. Now, do you detect a bit of attitude in that? Uh, they, they are, um, they're a little bit indignant. Uh, I mean, here is Jesus... Jesus owed his position to the fact that John testified about him. And now what's happening? Well, people are now going to Jesus to be baptised. And who is going to him? There's a bit of hyperbole here, by the way. Hyperbole is when you, um, exaggerate, a, uh, you exaggerate something in order to make a point sharper. And sometimes it's a legitimate thing to do. Jesus uh, sometimes uses hyperbole. You know, for example, when he says that uh, if anyone would come after me, he must hate his mother and brother and father and brothers and sisters. You know, he's, he's sharpening the point. That's the use of hyperbole. Uh, sometimes people use hyperbole just because they're cranky. And, uh, you know, um, they... You see, who do John's disciples say are going to Jesus to be baptised? Who do they say? What does the text say? What does it tell you? Who is going to Jesus to be baptised? Can anyone tell me? Everyone. Everyone. They're saying, look, you know, everyone's going to him now. 
That's hyperbole because clearly not everyone is going to Jesus because we've already been told in verse 24 that uh, people were constantly coming to John. But to them, it's like everyone's going. The real issue is that more people are going to Jesus. Uh, It's a bit clearer in chapter 4, verse 1, because word about this got around and apparently even the the Pharisees heard that uh, Jesus was, uh, more people were coming to Jesus and Jesus and his disciples at least, his disciples were baptising more than John. Now, this was a real issue for John's disciples because it threatened their position. But how does John respond? Uh, In verses 27 to 30, John takes the thing which they have complained about, they've complained that John was the one who testified about Jesus and now everyone's going to him. Uh, He takes that and he turns it around and he uses it against them. Uh, He says, basically, sure, yes, I testified about Jesus, but what is it that I testified about him? Do you remember what I said? I said that I am not the Christ, that I am the one who comes in order to prepare the way for the Christ. You see, in verse 27, John says, A man can only receive what is given him from heaven. Now, there's a bit of a debate about whether that means that uh, uh, he's talking about the role that he has. You can only have the role that's been given to you from from heaven. And heaven, by the way, sometimes was used because they didn't want to use the name of God, because sometimes that was considered too holy. I'd often talk about heaven rather than God. Uh, So maybe it's talking about the position that John has and the position that Jesus has, something given by John, by God. Uh, Some people argue that maybe it's talking about the actual crowds that, that came. Uh, I lean lean to the former, but I think that there's something in the latter as well. John has received the role of preparing people for Jesus and pointing people to Jesus. That was his God-given role. It was his unique role in history to prepare the way. I think by way of extension, though, there is a an application for us to consider here for ourselves personally and as a church because as disciples of Christ God has given us the role of pointing people to Jesus Um, that is our role Uh, one of the things which I've learnt in uh, ministry uh, is that when I forget about that that our role is to point to Jesus Uh, When I forget about that, then I become very um, dissatisfied in ministry and unhappy. Uh, One of the dangers which church leaders face, and it was a danger that John the Baptist uh, obviously faced, uh, was that uh, we can, there is a temptation to secretly harbour a desire to be popular, um, to be well thought of, and to have, you know, basically to be leading the biggest church in town or in the area. 
that is a real, real, a real difficulty. Uh, we may talk a lot about Jesus. Uh, we may actually proclaim the gospel accurately, but there can be this issue in the heart of uh, wanting it actually to be about me, about the church leader. So, you know, we need to pray for church leaders. But it's something which can affect us all um, because as Christians we can, <clears throat> we can sometimes, I don't know if you ever do this, but uh, we can rank churches, you know, uh, the, the, the best to the not so best. And sometimes we can do that on the basis of external uh, factors, uh, such as how many people attend a particular church uh, or um, other things like that, external factors. On the mid-north coast, uh, where we live, there there are good Presbyterian churches where the gospel is very, very clearly believed and is clearly proclaimed um, throughout all of their ministries. But each of those churches is different. They have a different history. Uh, They have a a different town. They have different uh, other churches in the town and so on. And some of them are producing more fruit, at least outwardly, uh, and others outwardly seem to be doing it a bit tougher. Uh, But we're talking about gospel-centred churches here with uh, faithful leaders, with godly congregation members uh, serving Christ. Now, it's sometimes good for us to learn from other churches, but I I, I try not to compare ourselves with other churches uh, because I found that uh, when I do that, it leads to two types of sin, two types of sin. And the first type of sin is that when, you know, I compare our church to another church which might be outwardly, say, more fruitful or bigger or whatever, then it can lead to a, uh, a lack of gratitude to God for the many good things that he is doing amongst us. Uh, God gets pushed out of the picture in my thinking. And that can lead to discouragement and lack of satisfaction. On the other hand, uh, when compared to churches that appear to be less fruitful, smaller churches or whatever, at least outwardly less fruitful, it can lead to a different kind of sin. And that is the sin of pride. The sin which says that we're doing better than them. And you know what? that in all of that kind of thinking, uh, it's not about God. It's not about Jesus. It's about us. It's about me. It's about how well we think that we're going, even though we might accurately preach the gospel. Uh, You might be encouraged to know that um, the Presbyterian leaders in this part of the world, uh, that we gather together regularly and when we do so, we, uh, we openly share about uh, how the churches are going, what God is doing in the churches, what are the difficulties, what are the struggles, what are the joys. And then we spend time praying for all of the churches, uh, praying that uh, 
the leaders and the congregation members would remain faithful to the gospel and praying that God would be honoured and glorified in all the churches. So there is this great spirit of fellowship and love and unity uh, because we're trying not to be on about building our kingdoms but building Christ's kingdom and honouring him as number one. And so I think that this is part of an issue that was going on for John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, they were a bit concerned that uh, another ministry was growing uh, more than theirs. Well, John uh, talks about his role as he responds to them in, in this way. And in verses 29 through to 30, he, he says that um, he is like, uh, he's like the best friend at a man's wedding. Uh, just talks about good friend there, but I think we sort of similar to our idea of the best man at a wedding. I, I don't know if uh, some of you blokes have been best men at weddings. Uh, I've been a best man before. And uh, unless I got it really wrong, I can testify that in our culture, the best man doesn't have to do terribly much. Uh, you, you front up at the wedding. Uh, you make sure you bring the, the rings. Uh, you sign the register. And uh, you tell a few embarrassing stories at the reception. I think, it's, is it, have I got it right? Is that the job? Did I miss anything? Okay, good. That's what... Sometimes you have to arrange the... I'll arrange the Bucks night. Yes. Yes, I'm good at doing that. Um, <laughs> yep. You've got to make sure he gets there. That's right. Yeah, that's true. And hold his hand because he's usually really nervous sitting up the front here and someone's got to be by his side. Um, I, I saw a video the other day. I was researching this issue got onto Google, searched it and checked out videos and so on. I saw this video of a best man who actually took the starring role uh, in a wedding ceremony but for all the wrong reasons. You want me to share it with you? It's got nothing to do with the sermon but uh, here he goes anyway. <laughs> uh, he, he, uh, he, it, was, uh, it was an outside wedding uh, in a resort and they were doing the wedding vows right next to the swimming pool. Okay? So it gets to the point where the minister's, <clears throat> you know, going through the vows and they're about to exchange rings. The best man steps up from his seat, walks forward with the rings and he slips. Uh, must have been water from the pool or something rather. He slips, he falls right onto the bride and she goes straight into the swimming pool. <laughs> Uh, the message is, folks, um, get married in a church. It's, it's a whole lot more controllable. You can control the environment much better. Uh, in John's day, the best man did have a lot more to do than in our day uh, because he didn't just organise the Bucks Night. Uh, he organised you know, a lot of the preliminaries for the, uh, for the wedding. Uh, he managed and he presided over the wedding feast, which was an extensive kind of an affair. Um, and in verse 29, you see that he considered it to be a, a joy to serve the groom, so that what the, what the groom asked for, the best man, you know, was eager to hear what the, best man, what the groom had to say, 
and to do uh, to serve him in that regard. Now, in John's illustration, the groom is Christ and the bride is the church. Uh, that's threaded throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, particularly in books like Hosea. Uh, the, the, the groom is God and the bride is Israel. Uh, in the New Testament, uh, the bride is the church. See that in Ephesians 5 as one example. I was talking with an old mate of mine the other a few months ago and we were reminiscing about school days and we we're talking about uh, an old friend of ours and how happy and contented he is in his marriage. And uh, my friend said to me, did you know, Scott, that 30 years ago that he was the one who introduced the, 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 them to each other? And there was this real sense of joy in his voice that he was involved that he'd introduced this couple and 30 years later that they were still humming along really nicely as a married couple. That was something which brought him joy. Well, here, the best man is John. Um, and he is the one who has prepared the heart of the bride because he came preparing and preaching to people before Jesus came. He's prepared the heart of the bride... Uh, he's arranged the marriage, and in verse 29, the joy of the best friend is the joy that John has experienced. It belongs to him. And so his joy, as he sees the crowds of people going to Jesus, his joy is now complete. Now, it's hard to imagine the best man wanting the bride for himself. Is that hard for you to imagine? In our sinful society, come on. <laughs> I've I got to tell you about another video I watched um, on YouTube. And this one was also it was a wedding done in a resort. And uh, they actually had security camera footage uh, of the reception. And they showed the best man with the bride uh, in a place where they thought no one could see them actually having more than just a peck on the cheek. Right? A pretty embarrassing kind of stuff. Right? It was the best man who wanted the bride for himself, at least informally. But John's point, and you see, when you want to bring the glory to yourself rather than to Jesus, that's what you're doing. Uh, John's point is that the, the bride belongs to Jesus. The church belongs to Jesus. Uh, he's saying that he is not the head of the church. Uh, he is not the front man in the ministry. That actually Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the groom and nothing could bring John more joy than that. You see, Jesus is no mere prophet. Uh, people these days want to lump Jesus in uh, as if he's just like any other religious leader from the past, don't they? Uh, you sometimes, you know, have you heard this? You know, people say, oh, well, there's, you know, there was Abraham, there was Moses, there's Muhammad, there's John the Baptist, there's Buddha, there's Paul, there's Jesus, there's... as if they are all just enlightened human beings. Well, look at what John says about the relationship, the difference between himself and Jesus 
in verses 31 to 35. Now, I'm going to read this for you because it's a little bit complex, so you're going to have to put your thinking caps on for a moment, but I'm going to try to make it simple um, for you. But let me read it for you, verse 31 to verse 34. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Right, you got that? Clear? Now let me try to, it's a bit compact, there's a lot in that, let me try to tease it out for you. Uh, John is saying that Jesus uh, is in a category completely on his own. Uh, and he gives his disciples three, three reasons for saying that. Uh, firstly, in verses 31 to 32, uh, John uh, has come from the earth. Uh, he is just a normal person, a, a prophet, yes, but, uh, but he has never been to heaven. Uh, he is an, he's of the earth. And so when John preaches about heavenly things... Uh, he is just passing on the message that God has given him. So he's a, he's a messenger. That's what he is. But when Jesus speaks of heaven, it's because he's actually lived there eternally. Uh, when Jesus speaks of God, it's because he actually is God. We saw that in chapter 1, didn't we? That uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So when Jesus speaks, you know, it doesn't go like God, John the Baptist, people. It's like God, people, uh, directly, uh, because he speaks of what he's actually seen and actually heard because he is God in the flesh. That's the first reason that Jesus is in a category of his own, a pretty big reason. Secondly, in verse 34, God the Father is given the Holy Spirit to Jesus without limit. He hasn't sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> the, the Holy Spirit isn't sort of half given to Jesus. Uh, he is fully given to Jesus. And thirdly, in verse 35, because God the Father loves God the Son, uh, he has placed everything, the whole of the universe, into his hands. Now, that's pretty big. Uh, I want you to think about the creation for a few moments. Uh, what, is the most, what is the most important part of God's creation? Now, I think if, if you think in terms of size, you'd have to say it's the planets, it's the stars and, and so on. But it's not the case. Uh, the most important part of God's creation... Uh, is us. Uh, it's, it's people like you and me. It's the church. The church is the most important part of God's creation. Now, we may not look very impressive from up here. Some of you look impressive, some of you... Uh, OK, I'm not sure what it looks like from your perspective. Right? 
We may not look very impressive. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul says that uh, God hasn't called the, you know, the rich and the famous and the beautiful and the, you know, God calls uh, the, the people who are ordinary to be his people so that all the glory goes to him. But God's ultimate goal in all of his creative work, his ultimate goal has been to create for himself a people who belong to him, a people who love, honour and obey his son, Jesus. And so we read that in Philippians, don't we, that uh, God's ultimate purpose is that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ uh, is Lord. We see it also in Titus chapter 2, that uh, you know, God has created a people of his very own, a people who are eager to do what is right, people who are eager to love him and serve him. And he's made that possible through the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus, on our behalf. So what this means is that life is all about Jesus. And therefore, how you respond to Jesus seals your eternal destiny. Uh, Verse 36, I think, could not be any clearer on this. In verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath rests on him. That couldn't be any clearer, could it? That uh, you need to make a choice in life, a choice that affects your eternal destiny. Uh, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life or reject the Son and have God's wrath remain on you. Now, we see there that... It is all about Jesus. Life is all about Jesus. And this has a tremendous impact on our joy. Uh, This is the very key to understanding uh, joy, uh, the joy that John the Baptist experienced and the joy that we can have as well. Jesus says a lot of things about joy. In John's Gospel, I've printed some of the verses for you on your outline. But in a nutshell, uh, what Jesus says is that uh, if we remain in his love and if we obey his commands, then our joy will be complete. Complete. That is the secret to joy. So life is all about Jesus. And that means that the church is all about Jesus. We are the bride of Christ. He is our groom. And like John, we are to point people not to ourselves. We are not to advertise our glory. We are not to exalt our position. But rather, we are to point people to Jesus. John's disciples were cranky because Jesus was more popular than John. But John wasn't. Not at all. Uh, The crowds are coming to John, for sure, but more people are going to Jesus. And 
faced with the inevitable decline in his influence, how does John feel about that? Well, the word happiness doesn't describe it for him. He says that it's an experience of joy, of complete joy, of deep, profound, contented kind of happiness. And so he says in verse 30, I must become less, Jesus must become greater. John is happy to now fade into the background. And friends, I want to say that you and I ought to as well, that we ought to become less, that we ought to fade away uh, in one sense. Uh, the world keeps on telling us that life is all about, um, uh, what did they say? I think they'd say that it's all about loving yourself first, uh, it's about others second, and if God is on the picture, then he's definitely down, right down there on the bottom. Would you say that's true? You know, you first, others second, uh, God last. We're often told you've got to look after number one. You've got to love yourself first. We're even told if you don't love yourself first, you won't be any use to other people. It's you first, others second, God last. You know what the Bible does to that hierarchy? It kind of takes it and turns it around, turns it on its head. Uh, because uh, the Bible would say it's got to be Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. And the irony of that is that uh, true joy can only be found that way. Put yourself last, put Jesus first, and you end up with joy, contentment and satisfaction in life. Because true joy can only ever be found when we live for the very purpose for which we've been created, to worship Jesus, to put him first. Uh, Jesus himself um, says this, and he puts it in very stark terms. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, uh, he says, whoever wants to save his life must put himself first. No, must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's really stark kind of talk, isn't it? And uh, you, you and I, we're probably not going to lose our lives physically for the sake of Christ, although that's not impossible. And if God calls, us, uh, calls upon us to do so, we must. We're probably not likely to lose our lives physically for the sake of Christ, but we certainly lose our lives. In the sense of our ambitions, in the sense of what we think is important, in the sense of who we think life is all about, you know, will you seek your meaning and your purpose in putting yourself first, in being popular, uh, in being part of something which is outwardly successful? Or will you find complete joy by putting Jesus first in your life in general, in your ministry in particular? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can have complete joy. Uh, we thank you, Father God, for this radical teaching that uh, tells us to uh, do the exact opposite to what the world tells us. 
we pray father god that uh, we would be people who are just um, uh, completely satisfied uh, in putting jesus first because we know who he is that he is god uh, that he has loved us so much by dying on the cross uh, may we father god um, put him first in our lives uh, in our ministries may he be exalted amongst us and we pray father god that you would protect us from worldliness that uh, makes us want to think that we're the most important people in the world that uh, tells us that success is something that you measure outwardly Father, help us to measure success by Jesus' success, by the people honouring Christ and not us. We pray this in his name. Amen.